0: Here behind the curtain, if you'd like to go, uh, I'd like to welcome up this morning uh, the Reverend John Craft. Uh, John is is one, a good friend of us here, at Redeemer. You we've seen him and, and heard from him a number of times. He is the campus minister with uh, Reformed University Ministries over at Rhodes, just down the street from us, and um he and his wife, Lee, and their two kids are are often with us, and we love it every time that they're here. So if you would, you can welcome John as he uh, brings us God's word this morning. Appreciate it. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, uh, thank you all again. for uh, It's a privilege to be able to be here with you all this morning, and just, uh, again, want to thank you all for opening up uh, I know John Crosby. I know it's always confusing because John sees John Crosby and John Kraft. Uh, but opening up uh, Redeemer uh, this building for us on Tuesday nights for some RUF. Also, uh, you know my uh, my end of uh, end of year student survey. What are your you know what are your favorite RUF events that we do throughout the year? And for the at least for the Rhodes students, I can speak for them. The number one and number two events are the fall barn dance and spring tacky prom both which we also do here at Redeemer. And and so, again, very thankful for you all and your willingness uh, to let us uh, use this building um, for, for many events uh, that Rhodes RUF does. And so if you look with me, uh, it's printed on your bulletin or if you're in your phone or Bible. I would turn to Mark chapter 14. And... Uh, you know one of uh, one of it 's actually it 's a kid 's movie, but it 's been one of my f- favorite movies the last few years is the Lego movie and uh, i 've probably i 've seen it i think two or three times i 've probably heard it from the front seats of the minivan, uh, probably two or three hundred times uh, as my kids have watched it uh, but uh, but it 's one of those movies that I think has a very universal theme, which is you know the main character is named Emmett and he is basically just an average, an average guy, and one of his dreams is is that is that he wants to be special, that he doesn't want to just be average, that he wants you know people uh, to look at him and think that he's special, to think that he's a hero, you know, and 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 throughout this film, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but early on uh, he gets mistaken for kind of the special one, sort of a, a messiah figure who's going to come to change everything. And he immediately embraces this because he wants to be the hero of the story. You know, that, that he wants to be special. And I've thought about that because I think about my life, you know, as, as a son, as a brother, as, as then a father, as a pastor, you know, as a roommate, as a spouse, as a husband. That, that over and over again, you know, I want to be the hero of the story. You know, I want to be special. You know, and just even, you know, a, a humorous little aside, uh, one of the things my wife, Lee, loves to do uh, when I'm distracted sometimes, especially, you know, if I'm very, like, intent on watching, like, a Grizzlies basketball game, especially as it's nearing the end, is to then try to ask me to take some BuzzFeed quiz because my answers will always be off. And I remember she was, you know, giving me this BuzzFeed quiz, you know, what Harry Potter character are you? And I kind of, you know, kind of gave her distracted answers since I was watching TV at the time. And she started laughing. I looked over. I was like, what? She's like, you got Draco Malfoy, and um, who's the villain of Harry Potter. If you haven't read Harry Potter, this is, I don't have to do this with my Rhodes students, but. Um, and, and, and it is funny because, uh, and immediately, what did I do? I was like, we're taking this quiz again. And I'm, I'll please let you know that after five times, I got Harry Potter finally. And. You know, and, and widespread evidence as we look at this, this passage in Mark is that the, the book of Mark is that Peter is the main source of this gospel. And that Mark wrote it with Peter as the main eyewitness, the main source. And, and so Peter is who I kind of want to look at here in this passage about the night before Jesus' crucifixion. We're also going to obviously talk about Jesus as well. Uh, but I actually want to contrast here Peter with Jesus. Because I think Peter, like Emmett and like me very much wanted to be the hero of the story, that Peter desires to be a hero. Uh, so let me pray, and we'll dive into the passage. And we're just, you can see it's a longer passage, so we're going to actually just take a few verses at a time as we go through it. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this beautiful morning. I pray that, um, that you would encourage us with your gospel, that you would encourage us as we more and more um, see who you are, um, that as we just sang, that you would still our souls, Lord, Uh, with the beauty of who you are this morning. And I pray your Holy Spirit would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark 14, I'm going to read verses 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will not go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, Peter did, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And so here in this passage, uh, Jesus is quoting Zechariah 13.7. I'm sure a book you all have memorized. 13.7 uh, about sheep prophesying that all the disciples will flee and leave him. That they will be like sheep being scattered. And Peter will not hear of this. Peter hears Jesus and replies, even though they will all fall away, I will not. You know, and that's a pretty self-righteous, you know, big boy statement right there. That, and that, that Peter was probably still frustrated um, because in the previous chapters, James and John, his two friends, had kind of gone behind his back and, and talked to Jesus about sort of being his second and third in command. You know, and then even previously in that night, Jesus had talked about that one of the disciples would betray him. And so Peter is in this moment, sees this as a time to prove to Jesus just how loyal he is, just how much of a hero he can be, especially compared to the others. You know, I will be your hero, Jesus. I will stay true. And Jesus, not out of anger, but matter-of-factly states just how heroic Peter is going to be. You know, before the morning you are going to betray me three times. And you would think with you know all this prophecy of failure that Jesus would be angry. Uh, but Jesus here in, in verse 28, he, he promises you know, something. He says that as long with giving, you know, along with giving this negative prophecy about sheep being scattered, he says to have hope because they will meet again, that Jesus will meet them. Again, even, you know, as he talks about them failing him, Jesus is promising restoration. Okay, let's go back to the passage, Mark 14, 32 through 42. And they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came to them the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so Jesus here is beginning to feel the immediacy of what is coming. It shows, again, that Jesus is human, that he is not some robot that Jesus has emotional needs. Verse 33 shows that Jesus is distressed and troubled, that he has brought the disciples he is closest to, to his friends, you know, Peter, James, and John, to share with them his distress and his trouble. Verse 34, Jesus tells his friends how upset he is, that he's sorrowful even to death. You know, this sense of a great sadness, a great sadness. Notice here that Jesus has two actions when he has profound sadness, you know, prayer and friends. When he experiences sadness in the most troubling time of his life up to this point, Jesus thinks relationally. I need to go to God, and I need to have fellowship with others. Jesus doesn't go alone into the woods He does not close the door to his room. You know, he does not alienate himself from others or disappear. You know, he does not do like, you know, what I always saw in like rom-coms, you know, growing up. Like he doesn't eat, you know, whipped cream and, you know, cheese whiz and not shower for a week or two or throw away anything. You know, he actually, Jesus, no, he takes his friends. He goes to his friends and takes them with him. He seeks out people to care for him. You know, I don't know, you know, where it got started you know, and this is kind of a Southern thing, and I can say this is a Southerner, you know, that it was somehow holy, you know, to, to go off and be by yourself, you know, all the time. You know, that it was more mature to kind of hold everything in and not tell anybody, you know, and, and, and make it so that nobody, you know, that nobody has to do anything for you, that you're not dependent on anybody else. You know, that, that it, you should just say that everything is fine even when it's not, and not trouble anybody. You know, and again, there's, I'm not saying that there is, you know, not time to be by yourself praying. And obviously throughout his ministry, Jesus, you know, goes away for a time to pray. You know, he, he, he takes a moment to kind of refresh himself. But just saying that in a crisis, Jesus goes to prayer, but he also gets with people. And he prays with people. So if the only perfect human, and this is what Christians believe, we believe Jesus was, you know, was both God and man, that he is perfect. So if the only perfect human, who is also God, needs to be vulnerable and open up to people, I think it's safe to say that we might need that as well. The, the notice for Jesus showing weakness is not shameful, but it's reality in his kingdom. It's reality in this broken world. The maturity actually to Jesus is showing weakness and admitting that you need people and how you really feel. In fact, Jesus' main critique of the Pharisees is that they always act like they have it all together in the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, uh, I was uh, going to college. I was a film studies major to the delight of my parents. And, uh, you know, very practical degree. And uh, I loved it, though. And uh, you can tell I've already used two movie examples. And, you know, and one of the things that I love, because it's around my birthday, is to have Oscar parties and watch the Oscars. And, you know, and sometimes I always joke that, you know, uh, that us Christians, that if you're a Christian, that we should win the Best Actor award all the time. Because, you know, we show up to church, you know, looking nice, everything's fine, you know, uh, telling jokes out in the lobby, and, and, and making sure that nobody knows how insecure we are, that nobody knows how the last week has been really hard. You know, that nobody knows that, like, man, my family is a total mess. And, and, and how much we often, you know, we should receive Oscars for that. You know, that that we're stressed about our jobs, about our schools, about about our future, you know, our families, our roommates. You know, that life is actually oftentimes anything but fine. And, and, And so I say this is the church, and if we can't be real at the church, then where can we be real? That's one of the things Jesus is showing us. But quickly, let's go back to the prayer. Because Jesus prays to God, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What's going on here? First, you know, we see the intimacy that God the Son has with God the Father. You know, a very intimate name. And obviously, you might have heard before that oftentimes people, it's a hard, Abba is a hard thing to translate, but often people, you know, say daddy, that that's probably a pretty good translation, daddy, like kind of this very familial term. You know, and and again, the Trinity is a hard concept for us, not something I'm going to get into uh, this morning one God, three persons, uh, but it does show that at, at his core, God is three persons. And, you know, one of the things that when I think about daddy, I, I think about uh, uh, my daughter, Lizzie, uh, who when she was little, really little, we would uh, have college students in our house all the time. And, of course, college students always, call, always called me John all the time. And, and so Lizzie, hearing this, decided that she was going to start calling me John as well. Um, especially when she was frustrated with me. She would be like, John, I'm not going to bed, you know, these sorts of things. And and I remember this concerned me greatly and sitting down with her and trying to talk with her and William uh, about not, you know, that I like that they call me dad and daddy, that I, I don't necessarily want them to call me John. And and I remember Lizzie saying, well, you know, I want, I, you, know, I, you know, everybody else gets to call you John. You know, so I want to call you John. I'm like, you know, Lizzie, I hear that, but only you get to call me Daddy. Only you and William get to call me Daddy. And that's a special, special thing. And 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 I remember Lizzie saying, oh, so it's a special thing. Yes, it's special. You know, and, and the Bible is showing us that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is special. That, that Jesus is, you know that the that relationship between God the Father and Jesus is more intimate than any relationship that we have known. You know, and this is kind of a very personal view we get here, you know, in the passage, that it's this perfect relationship. And yet Jesus understands that his mission as he goes to the cross is to lose that intimacy and to lose that relationship, to be forsaken on the cross for his people. And Jesus shows here that he is truly human, that he asks God the Father to find another way. He doesn't want to lose that. You know, Jesus is not some masochist. He is not, you know, someone who wants to bring on the pain. Jesus hates pain. He hates death. He wishes there were some other way. Yet Jesus shows his obedience by submitting to God the Father's will. You know, unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus faces temptation in the garden and submits to God. Again, you know, where in the Bible is it virtuous to keep it all together, to not show emotion, or to be vulnerable, you know, or to talk to God realistically about your feelings in prayer? But you also see that Jesus faced more on the cross than suffering, you know, at the hands of friends, you know, who've abandoned and already fallen asleep on him, you know, and enemies who would go on to, to kill him and torture him. You know, in fact, all signs point to Jesus being the greatest human to ever live. So the only possible reason is that he was going to suffer um, a more terrible death than anyone else has ever suffered or will suffer. You know, the death of Jesus was different. You know, and, and of course there was physical pain involved, but it was nothing compared to the spiritual pain that Jesus was going to feel as he took our place on the cross and was abandoned by the Father. You know, to try to get you to understand this, think of the time you've been abandoned or betrayed in life. You know, by a parent, by someone leaving you or betraying you. You know, by a close friend hurting you. You know, this is a deeper pain than anything else. When you have intimacy with someone and that is ripped away, it feels like death. It's worse than death. You know, and some of you experienced this in your life. And it's why, you know, betrayal and abandonment, And divorce can be so traumatizing to those involved. And Jesus had the most perfect, intimate relationship with the universe. And he knows he's going to lose that, to be forsaken, you know, and to experience the displeasure of, of his father. You know, and this is what we call hell. It's why in the Apostles of Creed we talk about, you know, Jesus descended into hell. You know, being forsaken by God on the cross was hell for Jesus. And so hopefully, God submitting, you know, Jesus submitting the will of the Father has a whole new meaning. You know, what unbelievable obedience. But more than that, what unbelievable love for us. Especially if you know how we treat God, or at least I'll speak for myself, how I treat God. How, how I reject God daily. How I sin daily. And, and look at how Jesus deals with the disciples here. You know, after, Je- after praying, Jesus goes to be with his friends who have fallen asleep in this hour of greatest need. And this happens three times. You know, Peter has yet to betray and deny Jesus three times, but he's already hurt Jesus three times. He's already failed him. You know, he's not much of a hero. Um, The Puritan Jonathan Edwards, in a very Puritan matter, uh, reminds us uh, that Jesus had every right to say, you know, why should I, infinitely greater than all the angels of heaven, why should I plunge myself into these dreadful torments for these sinners? Why should I leave all my love and glory and take this violent agony of burning into my soul for these who will never repay me and don't love me enough to stay awake with me, even in my moment of greatest need? But of course, Jesus did not say that or anything like that. In fact, the cross shows that he loves these men who fail him at his time of need. That if Jesus' love uh, could endure this, how could you and I believe that we can do anything to destroy his love for us? How can we do anything to destroy Jesus' love? You know, all the sins that we have committed and will commit against him have been paid for on the cross. And Hebrews thirteen five promises that Jesus will never forsake us, that we do not have some distant God who does not know what we are going through, that he became human That you ever been betrayed, you ever have people fail you at your greatest time of need, you ever been unbelievably vulnerable with somebody, you know, about how depressed you are, how hurt you are, only to have them lack compassion, or get distracted, or be indifferent. Well, so did Jesus. He knows how you feel. You know, Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a great high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses. You know, if you are lonely, if you've been hurt, pray to a God who has experienced ultimate loneliness, who has been hurt by the people closest to him. You know, where else will you find someone, a God like this? You know, one further point is that you are not to be alone, that you are created for relationships. You could say, you know, as as many of my students do to me all the time, You know, people have failed me. People have hurt me. People have abandoned me. Why should I trust people ever again? You know, and Jesus, the God of the universe, needed people. And he knew that they would hurt them. He knew that they would betray him. And so just because we know that people will often sin against us and people will often hurt us does not mean that we can reject all relationships and have no intimacy with anybody, and and if you are a Christian, the certain intimacy and the certain union you now have with this Jesus, whose love will never fail, can actually free you to begin to enter into relationships with people, to try to figure out how to love people, who might someday hurt you. You know, the gospel empowers us to live a life of repentance and forgiveness with others. You know, not just a lifestyle of moving on from one relationship and one church to the next, you know, or just kind of having kind of superficial acquaintances in life, but actually having real deep relationships with other people. You know, and they don't, and these don't, of course, don't happen overnight. And you have to show up, and you have to show up for a while in people's lives. But one thing this passage is showing us is that we cannot disengage even when we've been hurt. We might need to disengage from those particular people, but we can't disengage from all people. Okay, back to the passage, Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. And immediately while I was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him, them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. When he came, he went up to him and, once, and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So we see here that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And as an army approaches, someone cuts off not one of the soldiers' ears, you know, but, but the weakest one there, probably the servant of a high priest. We find out in John's gospel that this person was, of course, Peter, you know, the hero, that he was ready to do battle. You know, that, that, that Peter himself was probably trying to make it up to Jesus that he had just fallen asleep on him three times. And he wants to show Jesus, see how loyal I am. You know, and it's funny how often when we try to earn God's love or show how much for God we are, when we try to mask our weaknesses, when we try to be the hero, we usually end up hurting other people, you know, because Jesus is not looking for military heroism here from Peter, you know, that Jesus actually is not looking for that or success, you know, or the perfect family or the perfect body or the, or the 4.0 or being well-known, or having the perfect yard, or the perfect home, or having the perfect theology. You know, or or any other way our hero scenarios play out in our heads. Jesus actually doesn't ask any of us to be heroes. And again, the irony of them coming with an army, when Jesus continually has shown that is not the kind of king or messiah he is going to be. That, That for Jesus and his ministry and his kingdom, the only violence that is going to happen is going to happen to him. And we also have here a short, strange passage of a young man following Jesus. Um, early church tradition sees this as a young Mark, um, the writer of the gospel, but we're not sure. Uh, but the main point is trying to show is that everyone is leaving Jesus, even if it means, you know, running away as fast as possible without any clothes on. And we get here another, Im- another again, imagery from Genesis uh, of people naked running away from God. So here, and then let's finish up the passage, Mark 14, 53 through 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. For many fa- bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And sons stood up and bore false witness against him, saying... We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. You know, and again, uh, this is what uh, commentators like to call a narrative sandwich with Peter, where he's Peter's at the beginning of this little passage and at the end, and Jesus is in the middle. And, and it means that they're going to contrast here Peter and Jesus. So first, let's look how unjust this trial is. You know, the Sanhedrin was supposed to practice innocent until proven guilty. But they gave Jesus no defense. They brought out false witnesses who contradicted themselves. They are supposed to take two days for a capital punishment case, but actually did this quickly. Then they allowed people to mock, spit, and beat him when he was supposed to be protected by Roman law. And most importantly of all, Jesus was innocent of all these charges. And it shows us yet again that Jesus is somebody that that we worship a God, if you're a Christian this morning, that you worship a God that understands oppression, that, that, that understands injustice because he experienced it firsthand. You know, and, and some of us uh, in here, maybe many of us have experienced injustice and oppression, some way more than others. But Jesus knows and understands because he suffered one of the greatest injustices of all. In fact, though he is the one being judged, ultimately he is the judge, that he is the just one. And this is what he is saying in his blasphemous reply about being at the right hand of power. That Jesus is the ultimate judge. And the Sanhedrin, in fact, is actually the one committing blasphemy. That they accused him of being a false prophet while his prophecy about Peter and his death were coming true. And here's the foreshadowing of the cross. The judge taking upon himself the role of the guilty. And the guilty taking upon themselves the role of judge. You know, or as as the theologian John Stott says, for the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. Now let's turn to that contrast I was talking about with Peter. You know, first we see that Jesus is being questioned by the Sanhedrin, you know, the most powerful men and, and for a Jewish person. Peter is questioned and accused by a servant woman, you know, with, who would have no power in this patriarchal society. You know, so much for, for dying for Jesus and being the hero. You know, both are charged with something that will bring great trouble upon them. But while they're false with Jesus, they are true with Peter. Jesus declares the truth. Peter denies the truth. Jesus is beaten by guards. Peter warms himself by the guards at their fire. Jesus tells truth despite consequences. Peter avoids the consequences of the truth. Jesus is cursed by the Sanhedrin. Peter brings curse upon himself. Peter showed he was not a hero. He only wants the things heroes get. That he so quickly denied knowing Jesus, this man he loved, when it meant any sort of danger or inconvenience to him. Like Peter, we want to be heroes. However, more than that, we really fantasize about the results of our heroism. You know, receiving approval from our families, from our friends. Just approval from man, fame, comfort, you know, earning love from other people, you know, building up a great name where people know us. We all enjoy what comes with being a hero. And I believe Peter wanted to be the hero. He wanted to be the good guy in this story, or at least, you know, know, the humble, good sidekick to Jesus. He declared that he would follow Jesus always. Instead, he fails. And he fell spectacularly, and this is just in this passage. We could read the rest of Mark see more failure. And he falls asleep three times when needed. He spontaneously cuts off you know, a, a poor boy's ear, you know, possibly inciting even more violence. And then finally, he denies even knowing Jesus three times. The rooster crows, Peter realizes who he really is, and he weeps. And I don't know about you, have you ever had this moment, you know, when you thought you were good, like, like, I'm pretty good, I'm a pretty good person. And then you quickly realize, through some kind of event, that you're not, that you're not good, that you're not perfect. You know, for, this, for me, this happens all the time, you know, that, that I'm a pretty good roommate, I'm a pretty good friend, I'm a pretty good boyfriend, and I'm a pretty good husband, and I'm a pretty good father, and I'm a pretty good pastor, and I'm a pretty good student, until I'm not. And then I weep when I realize I'm not pretty good. You know that, and what do we do with that failure? You know, with all our selfish desires? You know, because when I look at my life, I realize that not only have I failed to be the hero of the story, that if I'm truly honest with myself, I'm sometimes the villain of the story. That that often, that, that I'm making the people around me lives worse by my sin, by my selfishness. And that realization is crushing. And so what do I do? And what can Peter do? Well, the answer is the gospel. Because guess what? We're not asked to be the hero of our own story. We're asked to figure out who the hero of the story is, and that's Jesus. And when Jesus becomes the hero of our story, everything changes. Because Jesus is the one who goes to the cross heroically, saving my life, though I deny him, though I sin against him. You know, we come here every week, confess sin. Hadn't been a week yet, I haven't had to confess sin. Probably going to be that way for a while. Until he returns. He returns. You know, we leave this passage with Peter weeping. But Peter does not weep long. Instead, he finds great joy after the resurrection as Jesus rises again and comes to Peter. You know, John records Peter seeing the risen Jesus on the beach. And though they were almost ashore, he jumps into the water because he wants to get to Jesus as fast as possible. Because it's clicked with him. It's not about me. Jesus is the hero. That Peter loved Jesus because he finally began to get it. It's not about having to be the hero. It's about recognizing and loving who the real hero is. And, and I don't know if um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter 2. Uh, this is a letter written by this Peter that we were talking about. And here's what, here's what this Peter writes about Jesus in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 22-25. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, talking about this night of Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And get this, if you remember the Zechariah prophecy. For all you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Peter, when talking about the gospel, when bragging about who Jesus is, in verse 25, he recounts Jesus' prophecy of his failure. Because this failure shows him the gospel. That Peter now loved Jesus because Jesus first loved him. that, that Peter now understands that while he was more sinful than he would ever realize, Jesus loved him more than he could ever hope. And so for Peter, his biggest moment of failure in life is now a moment to be able to brag on how great Jesus is. And only when we live in this truth of the gospel will we begin to find security in the cross and not in our present circumstances. Only then will we begin to enter into relationships Secure in Christ so that we can begin to love and forgive even those who might fail us. Only then will we begin to develop fruit that Jesus calls heroic. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, Peter ended up in life dying for the name of Jesus. But he could only do this because he knew he was the villain even of his own story. But he had a hero in Jesus And so when we fail like Peter did over and over again and are exposed, know that's just a moment to remember the gospel and that we have a true hero, a Savior, who does not bring shame, does not tell us to be better or else, but a hero who brings forgiveness and love and gifts and blessings and showers us with grace for eternity. If you feel shame this morning, know that Jesus is the one who says, come to me, you who are weary. Who are heavy burdened, who keep trying to be the hero, and I will give you rest. I am your hero. Let me save you. So let's look to our true hero of this story, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you um, for what you did, and I pray uh, for those in here this morning who feel shame, who feel like they don't measure up, who don't understand how you or anyone else could love them. I pray that you will show them the light of the gospel and your grace to them and how everyone in here is treasured possessions of Jesus and that he is our hero. Help us in that truth as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, John.